You're listening to the Bethel Community Church Podcast. Our podcast normally showcases our weekly sermons here in Chicago at 7601 West Foster. Now, podcasts are great, but they do not replace the care and community you receive from the local church or from your local pastor. So we encourage you to come, join our community, or contact us to help you find a community in your area. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you listen. Enjoy. morning, Bethel Community Church. Uh, my name is Mike Greenwood. I'm the director of groups here. Um, and I'm just happy to see everyone here. I've actually seen a number of new faces this morning, and so that's awesome to see. Uh, we are a community that seeks to proclaim the truth of Jesus and to grow mature disciples for the glory of God. And part of the way we do that is we gather here today to be equipped to practice our faith and go out. One other thing we do on Sunday mornings that's really awesome is at 9 a.m. we have a prayer gathering in the fellowship room just down the hall here. We come and we gather together to pray for each other and pray for the church. Uh, So that's awesome. I encourage you to do that. You don't have to stay for the entire meeting. But this week, I would encourage you to be in prayer for your church. Um, I know on behalf of the staff, I would love to see people commit to actually praying on a certain day of the week. Um, and let us know. Email us. Let us know. That would be a really big encouragement. We want to be a church that's covered in prayer at this time. Uh, we are in the Unprecedented I Am series. We're in the Gospel of John. And just like that Waymaker song, we're seeing Jesus tell us who he is. And today we're going to be looking at John chapter 14, and we're going to see the way and the truth and the life. As I was studying for this week and preparing for this, I saw this issue of communication kind of come through, and I was thinking through that. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've tried to communicate with somebody. For me this morning, I was in the drive-thru at a certain coffee chain, and I had to go around and go back in because my order wasn't right. And I know we've all been there. We can get frustrated. But even at the workplace or in our homes, we try to communicate and get our message across, and sometimes people don't understand Or we're on the other side of that, and people are trying to teach us, and sometimes we don't understand the message. And that's what I've been seeing in the gospel. I've been seeing Jesus communicating to his disciples, and they just don't get it. His message isn't new, right? And with care and purpose, he's been repeating himself. And so before we can get into chapter 14 today, we have context here that we have to cover. Jesus has been giving these I am statements He's been teaching crowds of people, and he's been supporting his teaching with miracles, like supernatural wonders. But part of that context is also that Jesus had hard sayings. He said certain things that caused people to walk away, crowds of people to walk away. He also said things that caused people to want to kill him. Right? So he's had a message, and it has a purpose, but this context is really important. If you open your Bibles to John chapter 14, the first line, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, let your hearts not be troubled. And these are his, the context here, these are his disciples who've been with him all in for three years. And if we're reading the Gospels, we see that these disciples haven't understood the message and they've also had some pride they've been dealing with. So as we're looking at John chapter 14 today, we need to respect that we're dropping right into the middle of a story. Chapters 12 through about 17 or 18, this is all a very short amount of time, and we're very familiar with the individual stories. But I want us to see that we're dropping in the middle of something this morning. So last week, Pastor Mark was talking about, I am the resurrection and the life. And 
Lazarus was raised from the dead. And this is a huge turning point in the story of Jesus. Because after this, the road to Calvary is very quick and swift. Jesus has raised the dead. And in that time, this is super significant. And it's important for us to understand it, to understand the climate that Jesus is dealing with. Everyone here knows, if you've been in church any time, you've heard of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They live in a society where they have these two major factions in their faith. And we know what that's like today. We know, like, we live in a world where we have conservative and liberal, Republican, Democrat. In the church, we have all sorts of things that we divide over. So we know what it's like to live in a time with division. And that's the big thing. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, their dividing line was the resurrection. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And you would think that the Pharisees would put Jesus on their shoulders because he's supporting their message and they would march him around. But the context here, they don't do that. They, that whole action, that miracle doesn't cause belief. It solidifies the plot to kill Jesus. It starts a plot to kill Lazarus. And this is crazy. That, this is a very important time for uh, Jesus and them. And you would think that this debate would be... Uh, they would rally around him, and they don't do it. The issue is, is Jesus' power threatens their power. Jesus' position with the people threatens the leaders' positions with the people. It's a crazy time. Now, Jesus, as we get past the Lazarus story and this big heated debate, the one thing I want us to learn from that on a side note is that even miracles will not always cause us to believe. Sometimes we put ourselves in the center, and even a miracle will not change our mind. And as we move forward from the Lazarus story, we see Jesus enter into Jerusalem. And he tells the people that the Son of Man must be lifted up and that he came to save the world. And the world doesn't understand it. And we start moving closer to our chapter. We get to the Passover in chapter 13. And we see the story, and it's important for our context today, of the washing of the disciples' feet. And again, we're familiar with this story. Sometimes we think about this cute story from Sunday school of how humble Jesus was. But the context here is much deeper than that. Jesus is troubled in spirit because his guys are missing the mark. They're blinded by their pride. And in the story of the washing of the feet, there's two disciples who are highlighted. And I think it's important to note it. Judas, the betrayer, is mentioned at the beginning of chapter 13. And Jesus is teaching his disciples about their pride and the kingdom through the washing of the feet. And in that story, we see Peter with self-righteous pride puffs up. And something happens. He gets rebuked by Jesus. And we see that Jesus is troubled in spirit. And he tells his guys, hey, one of you is not clean. One of you is not my chosen. And we fast forward and we're starting to get through. And remember, Peter's been rebuked once. And no one in the room knows about Judas. And we fast forward now. We're getting to the actual Passover meal. And they're at the meal. And we see now that Jesus is there at the meal. And he says, one of you will betray me. This is a guy who, with the Lazarus story, was troubled in spirit, deeply moved. Here he's saying he's troubled. He's saying, I've got a betrayer in my midst. One of you is going to betray me. The room has got to be awkward. The atmosphere has to be just not a pleasant one. We're, Jesus was a human like us. And it says that they could see his emotions when they see it in the Lazarus story. I can't imagine that the message we're going to hear in John 14 was really a happy message. So at the Passover table, this is important, Jesus passes the bread and he sends Judas out. And it's not coincidental. In verse 31, that's when he says, now the Son of Man can be glorified. And he tells the disciples, hey, where I'm going, you can't follow. 
And that's the very question that he's going to address in John chapter 14. That's the context of our passage. But again, before we get there, we see Peter again puff up, right? And he says, Lord, I'll lay my life down for you. But the Lord, again, rebukes him and says, hey, you're going to deny me three times. So think about these interactions. Think about Jesus, who's troubled in spirit, a Savior who can relate to our grief. This man is dealing in sorrows. He's rebuked out, uh, he's sent out rebukes to all of his guys. And he has the looming cross over him, betrayal. And at this point, Peter's 0 for 2. There's got to be something in the atmosphere in this room. But the thing is, Jesus is going somewhere. He's given them the message. He's going to leave his men, who been, they've been dependent on him. And that's the question our passage addresses today. Where is Jesus going? What is he doing? And the thing we see is the disciples, they don't get it. They don't understand. They're blinded. And part of that might have been their pride. So the only thing in context that I glazed over in chapter 13, and again, it's important. The Lord was troubled in spirit. His death is coming. He has a betrayer in his midst. His leader, Peter, isn't understanding the kingdom. But once he sends Judas out, what's left in the room? This is a picture of the church. You have God's chosen people, his elect, these disciples in the room. They are the bride, Jesus the groom, and now is the time that the Son of Man can be glorified. I don't believe that's coincidental. And in that context, he gives out the new commandment to his church. And he says, love one another. As I have loved you, love one another. And the second part of that, he says what? He says, by this the world will know that you're mine. And so he leaves him with that question and leaves Peter with that rebuke. And where I'm going, you cannot come. And he has a message. And that brings us to John chapter 14. So if you open your Bibles and read with me, John chapter 14, verse 1. Let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and, make, and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Verse 5, Thomas says to him, Lord, we, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. But from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. And Jesus responds, he says, Have I been with you so long and you still not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say to me, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I have said to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe in account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, the Father, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, and you know him, 
for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see you no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father and the Father, I'm sorry, and that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself with him. Now verse 22, Judas not as scary, it says to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives, I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You've heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced. Because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. And the story continues. He says, rise, let us go from here. Father God, um, you are an awesome and mighty God, and you are trying to communicate a message to show us who you are. Uh, Lord, we ask that you keep us free from error this morning and help us to see uh, the message that you've been trying to get across. Lord, we love you, and uh, we just ask that you bless our time here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the question Jesus is asking is, or the disciples are asking is, where is he going? What's going on? And Jesus has been trying to show them. And the disciples at this point, they don't even understand what Jesus means when he says, I'm going to my father's house. They don't understand it. They don't understand even what that would look like. They don't understand what coming back means. We saw that in the Lazarus story. They have limitations on him, and Jesus lays it down for them. He gives them the message. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And it's interesting. As you read this passage, you'll see lots of commentators focus really on those places and those dwelling places of the Father or the return of Christ. But that's not really the point Jesus is getting across. He's laying something else down for them. And when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, number one, the first thing Jesus is explaining in no uncertain terms is that he is exclusive. He tells them again, I am. And we've heard this a number of times so far. This is that same Jewish ear-tickling phrase that harkens back to Moses and the burning bush and all of the Jewish history that comes with that. And even the phrase, the way, has biblical language that the Jewish faith would be familiar with the Lord's path, things like that. And you're going to see that Jesus now is using the same language in a different way. He's already given these disciples, they've been present, they've heard his words, they've seen his miracles, they know he's the bread of life, they know he's the light of the world, they know he's the gate and the shepherd. And not only is he the resurrection, they've witnessed him raise the dead. And Jesus now, to his disciples, is making it absolutely clear. He is as exclusive as it gets. And so the thing we want to recognize this morning is this exclusivity is the center of the theology of the gospel. Jesus is the only way. And it's this exclusivity that the world completely rejects. 
Because church, it's not the question of whether God exists or not. You'll find theists out there. The rejection of Christianity is that there would be an exclusive and absolute truth. It's not in the world's belief system. It's not in their worldview. And we can't spend a whole lot of time examining all the various worldviews, and that's not what we're here for. We can see what we need to from our passage, but we can widen our views a little bit at the moment. Um, I listen to a seminary president uh, named Albert Moeller on a daily basis uh, for his news. And one of his recent podcasts, he talked about this idea that every worldview out there is based in a theology, even the worldview of atheism, right? That's based in a theology of whether God exists or not, and they deny his existence, but at the root of it, we can call it a theology. Because what is theology, right? That's the study of God. And so we have a theology. We believe that God exists. And we ask that question, you know, who is God? How do we commune with him? What does he say to us? The world has a theology. And the difference that you're going to see, I think, in general, at the theology of the world at large, is the theology is more about the great I than the great I am. The world wants us to place ourselves at the center the world wants us to be at the focus. So as we examine this a little bit, I want you to ask, ask yourself the question, how has worldly theology infiltrated your lives? And what I'm getting at today is we risk placing ourselves at the center and making life more about me, the great I, than God. So just basic knowledge for us, right? We could think back to Genesis 3 in the fall. Part of that sin was to place ourselves in the driver's seat knowing right from wrong. Now, Jesus has already spoken to Jewish leaders about that so far in our series, and now he's showing his chosen people a lesson about what his way would look like. They've been dealing with pride, those disciples, and now they're trying to put themselves at the center of the kingdom. We've seen some of them want to sit at the right or left hand. So they want to be in the center or as close to the center as they can get. So that washing of feet story that we glazed over, right, that's a message against the disciples' personal theology. And if we look back at the world's rejection of Jesus and his claims, right, again, you will see that they recoil at an exclusive truth, that God would judge people and that God would set a single exclusive way. And part of that is the world wants us to have a relative scale. And guess where that scale starts, right? It starts with you, right? It's a relative scale to you. And so how has that infiltrated your thoughts? And how does the world make that argument? One way they argue for this relativism is the claim that your culture and history and your upbringing has influenced your morality, your perceptions of right and wrong. And then this claim, this argument they build, tries to imply that everything in your history and your society is full of so many negatives that you can't possibly base your morality on it. And honestly, that sounds like a very logical thought process. You can agree with everybody on that. Our history is full of issues. But as believers with a biblical worldview, this shouldn't be news to us. We call that a history plagued with sin. So what happens, though, in that worldview of relativism is what is right becomes what is right or what I think is right for me. So anything goes at that point. The argument brings out phrases like the lie that if your behavior doesn't hurt someone else, it's okay for you. Do what feels good. Or the question that kills me, and I see it on daytime TV, I see it addressed to women a lot of times, I see it really targeted on our kids is, the question of is, what's your truth? And you've seen it. You've seen your officials. You've seen it in the political world. They can't answer the question of what a baby in the womb is or even what a woman is. But the thing is, our response to that, we can't be surprised that the world would have a worldview like that. It's part of what they see. They have a commitment to a relative truth. 
right? And if they make a stand on anything, they risk offending someone and being canceled in their own culture because they're basing everything on themselves and not a God. One last thing on that relativism and how it's infiltrated people's spirituality, you can Google it. Google how to pray. I challenge you to look at that this week. In the top results, you'll see instructions on how to pray from the almighty Google. Step one is decide who your God is. Maybe your God's a mother figure or a father figure or a wise old man, a spirit or a rock. But you get the point. The prince of this world wants you to place yourself at the center of your theology, even to the point of where you pick your own gods. So that's step one. Jesus is exclusive. Step two, he is the way. He's also the truth. And in this passage, Jesus is revealing the truth about God. He's revealing more about God. He told his guys, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And they didn't get it. He said, show us the Father, Philip said. They didn't understand their teacher. He's communicating something. He's communicating the special unity between the Father and the Son. He's communicating ultimately his deity to them. And again, we all have a theology, and you have to put yourself in the disciples' shoes. He's stretching their theology here. They don't understand this. It doesn't fit the mold they grew up in. They don't understand the relationship Jesus has, and they don't see its importance yet. But it has a purpose because Jesus is revealing the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is not a new idea to the Jew at this time. And if you're reading your Bible this year on a plan, you've probably read through Paul and Saul. And you see that they were filled with the Spirit. But you also see something different. You know, Saul had the Spirit depart from him. And Jesus is explaining something completely different. Same language, different outcome, right? Jesus is promising a Spirit that will be with us, that will dwell with us, and ultimately will be in us. A helper that will be with us forever, that will not depart. This is a point of history in the history of Revelation. Jesus is showing who the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is. He's giving him a fuller picture who the God of the burning bush is. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he's just washed their feet. Right? And now he's walking towards his death. He's revealing God in a new way. And so we have to respect how countercultural these promises are that the Holy Spirit will dwell with us and be in us and will make his home with us. He then reminds them, again, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. He's offering peace. And it's a unique peace that only comes from what he's saying. These guys are living in a culture where they have to go to a temple that's in a set-apart city, and that temple is on a mountain, on a special temple mount, which has segregated courts inside of it with priests and sacrifices and an unseen God who's in a holy of holies. And Jesus is revealing something new. And if you know your timeline in a couple short days, we just covered in Easter, the curtain in the holy of holies will be torn. This is huge, and it's new, and Jesus is revealing something new about God. He's explaining to his guys that he has to go so the Spirit may come, and we don't have to understand why that is. It's what Jesus said. And this should matter to the lives of God's people, because he also sees he's the way, the truth, and he is the life, and God's people will live for him. 1 John 5, 11 and 12 tells us this testimony of our faith, right, that God gave us eternal life, and this life in his Son, that whoever has his Son has life, Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. It's exclusive. And this is important. And it's important that we get this in the right order. We were dead in our sins, and Jesus is the one who brings us to life. And the context here, he is speaking to his chosen people, and he's telling them, hey, you're going to do the works that I do and even greater works. 
And you're going to start to see as you read down in the passage that Jesus starts to repeat himself with the idea that if you keep my commandments, that you love him. And if you don't love him, you won't keep his words. And in all of that conversation with the repetition, Jesus is showing the importance again of the relationship of God and the truth. And he's telling us that if we love him and we believe in him, he's going to promise again that the spirit will manifest himself to us and come and make his home with us. Do we live our lives that way? with that knowledge, and how different is that from a tabernacle or a temple? To have a spirit who will be in us and cause us to remember God's words, which we need. We were dead in our sins, and for those of us who put our faith in him, who believe that theme that Pastor Mark talked about last week, he will give us life, and not just being automated and physical, it's a spiritual life, living for him. And we have to get it in the right order. We don't try to get to him by doing good works. So we start to remember this context, the washing of the feet, the sending out of Joseph, of uh, Judas, and the kingdom gathered with Jesus in the upper room. And so that's how we can make this practical. How do you make, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments? How do you make it practical? That's why we spent so much time in context to get here. Jesus gave them a new commandment, to love one another. As Jesus loved his people, we are to love each other. We're to love each other even when we don't understand each other. We're called to do that here as we gather together as a church. We're called to do that in our families and our other relationships in the body. We're called to do that, church, because it's hard. Just like Jesus had to wash the feet of prideful men, he gives his church the commandment to love each other because we need to hear it. I pointed this out before. The second half of that new commandment is that the world will know us by our love for each other. It's evangelistic in some way. Again, we don't have to understand how that works. He called it a commandment, so we follow it and we obey it. So if it's fair to say that this room, all of us who claim the name of Christ, a name which the Ten Commandments tells us he's jealous for, if we put our faith in him and we claim his name, then one of the characteristics of our church should be that we love each other. So the question for us this morning is, are we practicing our faith in a way as we gather here as a church? Are we reaching our community way where people see the love we have for each other? What does that mean? That means we have to be intentional in that. When we pick up our crosses daily, I think a part of that is remembering to love God's people, right? Like he did. He gave himself for them. And I myself, I'm relearning this lesson often because it's a hard saying, and I know for myself, I need to hear it often. Just being generally loving is not what comes natural to us all the time. So Mark talked about at the beginning of the service. We have opportunities coming up here, summer events. And Nikki said, they're geared towards kids in the neighborhood, some of them. You may not think it's for you, but the reality is you've been completely in mind when we design these events. That touch-a-truck event, yeah, kids will come out and you have the opportunity to come and serve. Or if you have a sweet car, you could bring it out. Um, but you could just attend and be here to love on each other and come here with that intention. Have fun with it. The Lord will honor that. If you want to see this church grow, our love for each other will be something that we have to have on display. We're working through lots of changes here at the church, right? We have got the search team, and you continue to pray for them. We have other staffing things we're working through, ministries that are starting and being planned for. As we do all these things, are we exercising love? Do we approach those with the idea that we need to love? Remember, Jesus told us we need to hear it. So Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and his people will live for him. 
And a major part of that is we should have love reflected in our lives, a love for each other. So summarizing just a little bit from this morning, right? Jesus is exclusive, and we need to remember that that is what the world rejects. And the question I asked you as a church, and I think if you're doing any of the group questions this week, is how has the world's theology affected you? How are the books and podcasts you're reading and things affecting you? Are you doing things, seeking your own happiness, putting yourself at the center? Jesus reveals God and the reality of the Holy Spirit living in us. Have you sought the Spirit in this? Are you living a life reflecting that God wants to be with you every day and that you're not alone? And finally, again, Jesus' people will live for him. And this life in Christ will reflect an active and intentional love for each other here in the church. I look at this as this is another hard message of Jesus because it is hard for us to love. So as we close, we're going to be approaching the communion table. This is our opportunity to come before the Lord, that spirit who causes remembrance in us. We can seek him to see how we can either repent of sin or how we can start to love each other. So I'm going to invite Pastor Paul up for communion. Um, Father God, uh, I thank you for this time of being in your word. Um, Lord, it, I, it is a hard saying, Lord, but we are here to love each other. And as I think of this church and I see the faces out here, um, Lord, I know I do have a love for many in this church. And I pray you continue to grow that in me. And I pray that you grow that for us as a church. And ultimately that by our mission statement, Lord, that you would be glorified in that as we seek to make disciples here, that people would see it. And they would point it all to you, Lord, that we do all these things for you, Lord. So we love you, and we thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.